Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget, we have a fundraising campaign on. One of our members has put up a $10,000 matching grant. So for every dollar uh, we raise, he'll match it. If you do a monthly donation, he'll match that times 12. If you're already doing a monthly donation, he'll match that times 12. If you increase that monthly, um, and I hope you do. President-elect Biden has announced John Kerry as his climate czar to lead what Biden calls an aggressive plan. Kerry says he'll do what's necessary. The plan will commit to what scientists say is the urgency of the situation. In Canada, Toronto Star reports that the Trudeau government is introducing what's being called climate accountability legislation that would set a legal framework to require the federal government to prepare plans to slash emission targets set every five years beginning in 2030, with the ultimate goal of achieving net zero when emissions are eliminated or offset by nature or carbon capture technology by 2050. Will either the Biden or Trudeau climate plans reach the targets scientists say are necessary? Let's start with just how urgent it is, because as devastating as the COVID pandemic is, we will get past it. We won't get past catastrophic climate crisis. And that's where we are headed at speeds that keep surprising many scientists. Now joining us is Peter Carter. He's a retired family physician who practiced medicine in England and then on both coasts of Canada and Newfoundland and British Columbia for almost 40 years. He's founding director of CAPA, Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, and more recently a founder of the Climate Emergency Institute. Peter has been following the global warming and climate change research since 1988. He was an expert reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the IPCC, their fifth climate change assessment in 2014, and the IPCC's 2018 special report on 1.5 degrees. Also in 2018, Peter published Unprecedented Crime, Climate Science Denial, and Game Changers for Survival, which he co-authored with Elizabeth Woodson. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be here with you. So there's an economist named Nordhaus, who I I mentioned on a previous interview uh, I did with Bob Poland, who won the Nobel Prize, I think it was in 2018. And he says, yes, the climate crisis is real. But we've got till the 21st century and hit four degrees, and then it can stabilize at about four degrees in, 21, in the 21st century, uh, which seems to put a time frame on it that's, that's somewhat less than urgent. Now, this guy got the Nobel uh, Prize in economics for the work, specifically for the work he does on climate. Now, if this guy's influential, and if he's informing either Biden, Trudeau, or the various elites that have real power in our society, um, then either Nordhaus is right, and we can, we've got lots of time to figure this out, and, and probably they think there'll be some magical technology that's going to show up over the next hundred years, so why worry? Uh, and even this Toronto Star report is talking about carbon capture, figuring it out uh, 
Um, so first of all, how urgent is it? And what do you think of this Nordhaus time frame? Mr. Nordhaus is a well-known economist and very well-known in the climate change community uh, because decades ago, he's reputed as being one of the main people in uh, picking for governments the limit, <coughs> the two degrees C limit of global temperature increase. And this two degrees C was a limit forever. Let me just jump in for people. So that's two degrees average global temperature above pre-industrial revolution temperature. Yeah, it's a lousy metric. I I mean, you know, you you really have to be in climate change science for a long time to, to even appreciate what it means. So it was a terrible metric to choose. And it's one of the things that has totally confused people rather than informing them. But that made him uh, famous and well-known. And uh, recently he's published a paper. I'd have to go back and check on it. The first time I read it, I couldn't even believe it. In this paper, he said that three degrees C, I believe he said, is the optimum temperature increase. No, four. For climate I, I saw the paper. It's four degrees. Oh, he my says, God. Well, that, he that's says that the, the world over the next hundred years, essentially can get can gradually get to four, and then the optimum temperature will be four degrees. Uh, we'll never see four degrees. Humanity will never see three degrees. We will be long gone. Um, that is an insane, ridiculous, um, horrible um, thing to say. Um, at two degrees, which is the... His, he supported two degrees. And two degrees was adopted by the EU in 1996 as a compromise. The scientists were saying at that time that the limit should be 1.5 degrees C, way back in the 1990s. And uh, two degrees C, I want to point out, is called an equilibrium limit. So we were going to, t- we were going to limit warming to two degrees C forever. We were never, ever going to go above two degrees C. One of the reasons why the EU picked that, I remember at the time, was that they said it would be uh, anything higher would be catastrophic to agriculture, catastrophic ecosystems. But they also said the two degrees C they picked because it would not exclude runaway. They used the term runaway. It would minimize the risk of runaway. Well, we know now that at two degrees C, we trigger runaway. Okay, what is runaway? We could now runaway. It, it's not really a term that is favoured by the climate scientists, but it's a term that the environmentalists and the NGOs <coughs> have used for a long, long time. And it's a very good term because what it means is that feedbacks, amplifying feedbacks, kick in in the earth and climate system, whereby, for example, the planet emits more greenhouse gases of its own accord. The easiest feedback to understand is forest fires increased by climate change, and uh, then you get a lot more carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere, also some methane and black carbon. And so you get all the main uh, global warming greenhouse gases emitted if you have more forest fires. That's called amplifying feedback because it amplifies what our industrial civilization has already been doing. Those feedbacks, there are many, many sources of them, and they're enormous. 
most of the sources are in the Arctic, and most of the enormous sources are in the Arctic. But we've also got, for instance, the Amazon, which would be um, a, a massive source if the Amazon, it's, it's collapsing already, but if the Amazon collapsed and, and went through dieback, as the experts called it, and uh, this goes back to um, uh, expert papers published in 2020, um, then anything that we could try and do would be useless. We would be completely powerless to influence the climate system at all. Well, my, and, that you're, say, um, you're saying this happens at two degrees, but my understanding from some of the leading IPCC climate scientists have said that if every country that agreed actually did what they agreed to in the Paris Accords, if they actually did it, we'd still be hitting two degrees by, by 2050, that the Paris Accord doesn't stop two degrees. And you're saying if we hit two degrees, it's, it's too late. Oh, two degrees is too late. There are lots of climate experts saying, um, uh, uh, in public statements um, and papers, that it may well be too, too late now. And we're at 1.1 and 1.2 degrees C, right? And look at all the uh, catastrophic events that we've had already. Um, two degrees C is, is, is definitely triggering for runaway. There was a good paper that got quite a lot of publicity um, uh, the year before last. And um, it got publicity by bringing attention to what it called the hothouse earth situation, which is another term uh, for runaway. It's a scientist term. And if you examine that paper carefully, which I did, because it's the most important paper, you'll see that all the triggers, and uh, that paper had about eight of the triggers, all the triggers happened at two degrees C. So the EU, decades ago, saying that two degrees C would minimize but not exclude the risk of runaway, is absolutely right. There, there are two main huge survival complications of global warming. One is, and this is to the human race, humanity alone, one is agriculture, right? We've enjoyed, we, we have fabulously successful agriculture, especially in the United States, but also in Europe and, and, and now in China, which is producing more food than any, anybody else. Our agriculture is amazingly successful, but it depends solely on the stable climate that we've had for the past 10, 11,000 years, which is why agriculture at that period was invented, was developed in many sites around the world. So it's obvious it was climate stability, which allowed human beings to make and do agriculture, which our civilization is totally and absolutely dependent on. So there are multiple adverse effects of climate change on agriculture. Many, many, many adverse effects. And it's really just common sense that if you get to a degree of heating, a degree of fires, a degree of drought alone, then you're going to collapse agriculture because the plants can't tolerate above a certain level of temperature, a certain heat. In actual fact, they have like a tipping point. They collapse at about 30 degrees C. So, number one, 
Number one, we always should have, and now we have to give it everything we've got to try and protect agriculture. Which um, actually, I, I watched a video by Paul Ehrlich recently from Stanford, and he, and he was very good. He started on agriculture and catastrophe right away. So agriculture is something that I've been very much interested in and involved in and consulting in. And it is the absolute key for our survival. And it is the most, most important aspect and issue for humanity for climate change. Now, the other big issue, big, horrible impact of climate change is what's called runaway. And that will wipe out just about all life from the planet. This is why the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, in 2018 at a World Summit, made a public statement that climate change, he said, is simply the biggest existential threat to life on the planet and, he said, particularly to humanity. That's what he was talking about. And at the, um, at the Conference of the Parties, the COP in Poland, which is every year we have a COP under the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change, this one was in Poland. He made an opening statement on that one that if we don't put our global emissions into decline immediately, then we are open to the risk of runaway. Now, he's a great great spokesperson for us and a great secretary general. Um, he, of course, can't make those statements without the backing of the top scientists of the world, even if the top scientists of the world aren't saying it. So um, uh, runaway is, is it. It's game over for everything. It's a completely different planet, a planet which is hot, hot, hot and heating up, not like the planet heated up before, millions of years ago, but it's heated up by our emissions at the fastest rate that it's ever been heated now, up. Now, is it a matter... And also... Is there a, a, a debate among scientists whether two degrees triggers runaway? Like, if we're hitting two degrees in 2050, which is what a lot of scientists are saying, does that mean we're triggering runaway at that point? Yeah. Um... The scientific way to look at this is to say, what are we risking? Okay, because the scientists say, well, we can't be sure. We, you know, our computer models aren't programmed for this yet. You know, this sort of thing. So if we, uh, for public communication, if we look at risk, which, of course, all the scientists should be, they're actually not, with, with some notable exceptions. If we look at risk, our risk of triggering a runaway at 2 degrees C is absolutely enormous. And there have been a couple of risk papers that have been published saying that. The 1.5 degree C report by the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was published in 2018, their best report ever, and still is their best report ever, it made it abundantly clear and this is why all of a sudden, after the 1.5 degree C report, the public at large and governments suddenly said, oh, my God, yes, we're in a climate emergency. And, of course, it was great for me. I've been trying to convince people of this for more than 10 years. Um, and it's a bit late in the day, but at least we now have this general acknowledgement 
right around the world that yes, we're in a climate emergency, and the um, and the big reason for that is huge risk to our agriculture and an enormous risk of runaway. It's a zero tolerance risk in terms of economics. You ha- you have to be more than a hundred percent certain that you're going to avoid runaway. Uh, the targets that are being talked about now is uh, zero net carbon emissions by 2050. I think the Chinese have said they're going to hit it by, I'm not sure, 2060, 2065. If those targets are hit, is that enough? Um, net carbon emissions is um, uh, um, uh, allows us to enter the, um, uh, uh, the age of climate change delusion. It's a relatively new term. Right. Um, since 1990, we have had IPCC assessments and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scientists' papers published, which have always talked in terms of actual emissions. Right. And they have always said that actual emissions have to be reduced massively and rapidly. They said this very clearly in the 1990 assessment. The um, IPC assessments in 2014, the fifth assessment, um, said that we have to get all our main greenhouse gas emissions down to near zero. And if you look fairly deeply in the 1.5C report, you'll see that they have that in there. So net zero is not science. And net zero, as it's being interpreted, is science fiction. And that's because net zero includes carbon capture, which is a totally unproven technology anyway. Well, yes, it, yes, it is, Paul. Um, the big problem with net zero is there's all kinds of definitions of it. And when you're talking about the future of humanity and the future of life on Earth, you have to be definite in what you're talking about. So, uh, but this is abundantly clear. But but it, so that you can make policymakers understand, you have to be definite. So that you can make the public understand, and the public wants to understand, you have to be definite. So net zero can actually mean pretty well anything. Um, the common definition that is out there in the science centers like MIT is. Um, uh, Countries will get their emissions down as far as possible, right? And then they will remove the CO2 in the atmosphere that's left over. It's absolutely crazy. And it is, it contradicts all the climate science that we've had for the past 20, 25 years, which is very definite. Emissions have to be dropped. In 1990, it was 80%, like in a matter of years. And now, of course, because we've got better science, as I say, the IPCC made this very important. It was a headline statement, right? It was one of their single most important statements of the big fifth assessment, near zero, not net zero, near zero for CO2, for methane and for nitrogen. Well, where did this net zero terminology come from? Well, it came from the scientists. And uh, there's been some net zero papers, few of them, published a fair long time ago. 
But after the Copenhagen Conference in 2009, the big failure of the Copenhagen Conference, and I don't know whether it was coincidence, but it was immediately after that confidence, uh, a conference, that, that you know, the big disappointment. We all got very depressed about it, you know, because everybody knew in 2009 we're in a catastrophic climate situation, right? Everybody knew that. The media were great. The media were telling us, right? And then, of course, you know, nothing happened. But what did happen is that the science and the policymakers started publishing material that made things a lot easier. But a lot easier is not how you, you ensure survival, our survival. So they started talking about net zero. They changed the two degree C limit to an equilibrium limit forever, to a limit only by 2100. And of course, warming doesn't stop. Climate disruption doesn't stop at 2100. It continues for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that got into the policymaker um, lexicon. And also, they, um, they introduced as the key mode of calculating mitigation, they introduced this thing called cumulative carbon. And that had been published long ago, but they made it, again, very indefinite. So we've got an indefinite uh, cumulative carbon target. We've got an indefinite whatever zero emissions means. Um, my, my first website, actually, that I did long ago was on uh, CO2 and explaining to people that CO2 lasts uh, practically forever like David Archer said in Chicago, one of the world's leading modelers on, on CO2 and climate, um, it lasts forever. Uh, it doesn't just last for hundreds and hundreds of years. CO2 lasts for many thousands of years, our emissions in the atmosphere. And therefore, it follows logically and by computer models that you have to stop emitting. You have to stop emitting CO2 because it is so persistent, long-lasting in the atmosphere, and that makes it so cumulative. It builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. Um, we have a concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere now, which is the highest in 23 million years. I, I, I like to use this science, because it's such excellent science, to be able the scientists, these scientists can track carbon dioxide back this far. Millions and millions and millions of years. I, I like to use that data because I think that's something that would impress the public, impress policymakers. Isn't this crazy? So let me just let me make sure I get clear on this. So net zero, what they have in mind is that either through carbon capture or some new technology that will take carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, in other words, you don't have to phase out fossil fuels. You can find other ways to get to zero. That, and it's, it's uh, you got it, Paul. That's the whole thing. Um, it's it's a uh, it is a deceptive, uh, clever in the worst sense of the word way of being able to not shut down the fossil fuel industry. Now, I want to point out that the IPCC 1.5C report. One of the big things, and there are many things I like about it, it was a great report. The IPCC did a tremendous job on that report. 
the best case scenario, which happens to be called P1, um, uh, but their best case scenario, which is the only scenario which could possibly have a glimmer of a chance limit to 1.5 degrees C, and the only scenario that could limit to 2 degrees C, has emissions declining this year and then declining fast forever. I was very impressed when I went from Madrid to the COP25, one of the big you know, UN climate conferences, that the chair of the IPCC, Dr. Hussein Lee, um, who is a traditional economist from South Korea, he made a great opening statement of the conference in which he emphasized over and over that emissions had to go into decline this year. Yes, he said, this year. So um, they have to go into decline, on, of course, on a constant basis. The UNEP produced a uh, report at the end of last year, which spelled this out very, very well. But all of the proper organizations are totally agreed, and all of the science is all agreed that the main thing is to get emissions into a rapid, sustained decline this year. The rest of the stuff doesn't matter. And it's not happening. And in fact, neither the Canadian government or the American government are even talking about doing this. When you look at the Biden climate plan, it actually doesn't even talk about phasing out fossil fuel. He mentioned it at the end of a debate, but he says we have decades to do it. Uh, it, it the, the, the Biden plan is mostly about carbon capture, which, which I don't know if I'm unless I'm wrong. Carbon capture doesn't work. I mean, nobody's it doesn't exist yet. Am I wrong about that? Um, carbon capture has been um, uh, in the IPCC assessment since uh, the third assessment in 2001, for sure, that I recall. So they've been talking about it over and over. Now they're calling it negative emissions, okay? Um, uh, um, these are things which are just confusing, and they allow the fossil fuel industry to continue to exist. And one thing is absolutely definite. The IPC is totally agreed on this, on its recent special reports. We have to end the fossil fuel industry, replace it 100%, which we've known for years that we can do. And the IPCC did a report in 2012, which stated that we could readily do it. We have to replace all fossil fuel energy, of course. Okay, so not... so. To not hit two degrees, how quickly does fossil fuel have to be phased out? The IPCC report has it being virtually phased out by 2050. This is not net zero. Their best case scenario, which is the only survivable scenario, is um, pretty well virtual, something like uh, 86 or 87 percent reduction of fossil fuel production. So virtually nothing. Okay, so we know it has to be phased out by 2050, but because we're so near to triggering a runaway, because at 1.5 degrees C, most of the crops in the world are going to go into decline, 
and at 2 degrees C, practically all of them are going to go into decline. Okay? So we have to get our emissions down as fast as possible. That's the question. The question is, the issue is not, you know, um, some vague um, uh, um, net zero. The issue is, no, how, how fast can we get our CO2 in particular emissions down? Okay, let me add, to, let me ask, because earlier you said how much agriculture is at risk. But if I understand right. it correctly, alongside of phasing out fossil fuel quickly, we also have to change the way we do agriculture. Yeah, and, and one of the good things about the IPCC 1.5 assessment is that it said we had to make major changes at all levels of society, and that includes agriculture. The two big sources of our emissions, of course, is fossil fuels, um, natural gases, methane, right? But the other big source, which isn't far behind fossil fuels, and people now we've got uh, we've got um, big reports acknowledging this and telling us how much it is is our food production. So we have to transform globally our energy production. That's not hard. We've got these all of these amazing new technologies. Of course, you know they're fabulous. They're brilliant for um, replacing all fossil fuel energy. We have to change that. You're, talk you're, you're talking wind, solar primarily. Wind, solar, um, uh, um, solar thermal in the sense of concentrated solar thermal. Um, uh, we can't give up nuclear. Um, the IPCC acknowledges that nuclear is a very, very low carbon source of energy. So we can't give that up. I know people don't like that. I've done a lot of research many years ago on nuclear energy. Yes, it does cause a small increase in cancer, but we have to survive now. We should be, and our politicians are not in survival mode. Well, let, let me just take it. Let me take you up on nuclear for a minute. Yeah. Um, even if one accepts that there may have to be some nuclear to deal with the crisis. Is it even possible that there be that it takes so long to get nuclear online, not just public opinion, just in terms of investment and technology? The time frame, it doesn't seem to me nuclear actually is a real option just because it's going to take too long even if you want to do it. The time frames are a lot shorter than I or, or any of us have ever realized or, or hoped for, I would say. We had two reports come out um, uh, about six months ago. They came out about the same time, one from the United States and one from the UK. And they, particularly the UK report, says we were really surprised because for the first time they looked into how fast could we actually get enough renewable energy online that it would be as much as all our fossil fuel energy, which was a very clever exercise. And you know what they said? Matter of years, 15, 20 years. It does, so but isn't that, that dependent of, on how much money is invested in creating it? I mean, it, oh, I course. mean, if you had a massive investment it, in wind and solar, it wouldn't take so long. If you leave it up to the marketplace, yeah, but, uh, maybe it would. But if governments intervened and did a massive... The governments are... The governments are all already intervening in order to slow down the development of clean renewable yeah, exactly. energy. 
And in order to keep going, what's killing the planet, literally killing the planet, which is fossil fuel energy, because they subsidize fossil fuels. They all do it. Actually, even the best of countries in every way sneak in some subsidies on fossil fuels. America, big subsidies. Canada, big subsidies. Biggest subsidies, of course, in China. Way the biggest. But the MIT did us a great favor in accurately, they did this first in 2015. They repeated the study about 18 months ago in which they uh, calculated what are all the economic benefits in the form of subsidies worldwide? And of course, you know, this made media because it turned out to be $5 trillion a year. So our governments are literally, they're killing us. Well, if you, if right? you were to flip that and have even more than that put into uh, sustainable energy, renewable energy, it, ain't gonna, it shouldn't take 15 years to make a lot of solar windmills and retrofit right. buildings. Right. If you stop subsidizing, and the, the um, civil society has really, really never been strong enough on stopping fossil fuel subsidies. Um, uh, um, there's one good NGO called Oil Change International. They, they, they keep on it, but the other big NGOs do not. Spasmodically, they have a little campaign which says that stop fossil fuel subsidies and then it disappears. Okay, the whole world should be should be breaking down government doors and telling their governments you have to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, which are killing us and destroying our future, and you have to do. Well, this it's now. the one thing about the Biden climate plan that seems actually really positive because he claims he's going to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. It's just not clear he'll do it until all the other countries do it. Um, uh, he has stated, I agree, um, uh, that uh, he's going to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. But when, you know, you're, well, I've learned over many years that when you're um, assessing a leader's policies on climate, you'd better go to the entire government. You'd better go to the people that he leads. So this is a Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, has its platform. And it's very important to go to this and go through the platform. The platform of the Democratic Party does not have ending subsidies. They do not have ending fossil fuel energy. Um, President-elect Biden doesn't have ending fossil fuel energy. I was very shocked when Vice President Harris had the uh, her debate with uh, with the Republican vice president. Pence, vice president and, Pence, go ahead. Oh, vice president Pence, that's right. You're a Canadian, and, you don't have uh, to she, remember his name. Okay, and, and she was asked a question which actually had nothing to do with her initial answer in which she came out and said right off the cuff, very emphatically, um, uh, um, Joe Biden is not going to stop fracking. Now, if you don't stop fracking, you don't stop destroying the planet. It's really that simple. Fracking is not only a horrible method of extracting fossil fuels with all the water use, all the groundwater contamination. Fracking is what's keeping the fossil fuel industry going. If it wasn't for fracking, there'd be 
hardly any fossil fuel industry today. The industry would be all clean, renewable energy. So number one thing you have to do if you're a political leader and you're saying you're going to do something about climate and you're going to protect your citizens, you're going to protect today's children and all future generations, right at the top of your list, day one, ban fracking. So let's look at what, what about the Canadian situation? Is the Trudeau government that talks all about being a, having real concern about the climate crisis, of course, oil's a big part of the Canadian economy, but this new legislation I mentioned off the top, where they're going to have this accountability starting in 2030. I don't know why they're waiting till 2030. And then every five years, they're going to see. But again, I think they're using this net zero terminology. So I, what yes. is it exactly so, they're supposed to be measuring every five years? So they're using a goal, which means nothing. If it means anything, the goal of net zero means we will still be burning more fossil fuels. So right off the bat, their plan's no use. It's no use. It's no help to our survival at all. Um, the other thing which is very important to do if you're going to analyze and really judge what a leader's policy is, is go to their energy departments. So go to the United States Energy Department which is uh, the um, Energy Information Administration, the EIA. They produce every year a really good, really thorough global review of energy future. It's my favorite. It's the, it's the most reliable one. Canada, they produce a document which they call um, Canada's Energy Future. Now, they've just produced their latest one for 2020. So what do these actual energy projections and plans, which are being made by the people that drive the energy, what do they say? They say by 2030, by 2050, we will be still burning a hell of a lot of fossil fuels. The American one says this. The last one was, uh, was nearly a year ago. And the recent one in Canada said the same thing. Canada's going to be, 60% of Canada's energy in the middle of the century is still going to be fossil fuels. So what, this game over. Where, where are they at on carbon capture? Because they keep talking about it. Is, is there any reality to it that it will be effective even, even in a small way? No, it's a fantasy. Number one, because you have to get your CO2 emissions down to virtual zero. To virtual zero, right? So there's no way that carbon capture and sequestration really enters the scientific equation. It's a contradiction. It's saying that the science says that we have to get down to virtual zero, but how we're going to do it is we how we're going to do it is we're going to remove carbon from the atmosphere. It's absolutely ridiculous. No, um, there is no capacity today at all to remove carbon from the atmosphere, let alone sequester it, so it never leaks out. Remember, we're talking about planet Earth for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's what we're talking about. This is why policymakers in the past talked about all future generations in terms of climate change. Today, our uh, leaders, our governments, 
are actually condemning us all. They're condemning today's children to inherit a hell on earth. You could just add up, which I've done recently for one of my presentations at the AGU conference, you can add up all the impacts that we know are going to happen at 1.5 degrees C and 2 degrees C. And this is what they say. Um, two degrees is really no future at all. Don't even think about it. Don't even go there. So um, uh, how, I mean, it's words defeat me of so-called leaders saying that we have a plan to deal with climate change. And that plan means that we're going to take carbon out of the atmosphere and eliminate it that way. And they say we're still going to have fossil fuel emissions in 2050. It, 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 it's, it's impossible. And it's completely unnecessary because we know that we can do this. We know, I think the public generally knows, that we can replace all fossil fuel energy, all of it, with a clean, renewable, which means everlasting energy, eh? with clean, non-polluting everlasting energy. Um, I like to talk about what we are robbing today's children of. Um, my, my friend, Reese Holt, has just published a great book called uh, The Gen Z Emergency. We're robbing our children of their future. There are some children that know this. Um, uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, she knows this, and she talks about, in a very sarcastic, critical way, which uh, only she, uh, I mean, she's the best at doing that, that's for sure. She talks about the governments are relying on technologies that, that don't exist and that probably never will exist. She's absolutely right. Greta has sure done her research on climate change, I can tell you. Um, uh, no capacity today. Governments and industry have been trying to develop carbon capture storage for decades. Governments have put big money, including in the United States, into trying to make carbon capture storage happen. It's not happened. Now, the favorite of the policymakers, and what until recently has been the favorite of the scientists, although they have changed, thank goodness, the favorite is something called BECS, Bioenergy Carbon Capture Storage. So when governments are talking about negative emissions, right, when they're talking about net zero, they're actually talking about what's called BECS. This is burning massive amounts of biomass, trees, massive amounts of biomass, and then capturing, and this, this is a fantasy, this is a delusion, capturing all this biomass, which they're using to make energy, capturing the CO2 from it, and then storing it, right? So that 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 the the ploy, the technology that doesn't exist that the governments are trying to uh, convince us of, right, is to burn more, especially and burn burn trees. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, burn. I more. mean, trees are part of the solution. Uh, you want to you want to grow a, a zillion more trees, not burn them. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah, you want to, you, oh yeah, um, uh, we should be planting trees um, as if there's no tomorrow because um, 
and trees don't don't um, they don't do carbon capture, right? Because the CO two will eventually go back. But right, if we if we do trant a trillion trees like people are talking about, oh yeah, yeah, we'll bring the we'll modify for quite a long time the um, uh, the CO two emissions and the CO two concentration. Uh, you you ask how bad things were, okay? Atmospheric all the climate change indicators, global warming, ocean heating, ocean acidification, atmospheric methane, atmospheric CO2, you go on and on, right? They're all at record levels. They're all accelerating. They're all accelerating. Atmospheric carbon dioxide, which of course is the most important one, it contributes the vast majority of the global heating, but it also contributes all of the ocean acidification. Ocean acidification, if, if we don't stop that, we're done for. Explain that. I, we only have a couple of minutes, but just explain that. A good research paper came out um, uh, less than a year ago, and they use models to project what will happen if we allow ocean acidification alone to carry on at the rate and it what is. what is that? And Ocean acidification. Uh, we, get a mass, we get a mass extinction. Okay, what is ocean acidification? So, Okay, ocean acidification is the direct impact of burning fossil fuels, putting CO2 in the atmosphere at an increasing amount, the increasing amount. This increases CO2 in the air, and the surface of the ocean in contact with the air, with more CO2 in the air, it absorbs CO2. And the ocean's doing this all the time, but now it's absorbing more and more and more CO2, and that acidifies the oceans. Um, it changes the pH in the terms of the scientists, but they all call it ocean acidification because at least that's a term that the public understands. Um, ocean acidification, of course, is obviously extremely damaging to marine life, marine ecosystems, and um, uh, there are ocean acidification hotspots all, all over the world, and unfortunately one of them is near where I live. So ocean acidification alone, which is the direct impact of burning fossil fuels, putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, it destroys the planet. It destroys the living planet. It destroys our future, right? Um, we really are so fortunate. Uh, Paul, you and I came into the world when, when the world was literally at, at its best in millions and millions of years. We came into the world where there never had been more biodiversity on the planet. There never had been a greater wealth of life and wonderful species on the planet, right? Um, but now, because of the um, industries, the big powerful corporations, and, um, you know, our, our compliant, terrible political leaders, which are maintaining the fossil fuel industry, look, human beings progress, right? Civilization progresses, right? And obviously, our destiny, which 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 we're looking at, is uh, to not have any pollution from our energy production, to have our energy production unlimited, right? Totally safe. And the more we produce renewable energy, right, the more we have, the better it becomes, and the cheaper it becomes. So it's a no-brainer. It's an absolute total no-brainer, but uh, apparently there's a we're lot. We're not of living in a rational system. That 
wait, wait, no, no brainers no, no, are my, my, uh, a part of rationality oh. and this system ain't rational. I got to wind it up, but we'll do this again, Peter. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Paul. Thanks very it's much for joining us. And please, everybody okay. don't forget, we've got this fundraising campaign on a matching donor uh, campaign. If you go to the website, it explains it all. Uh, and thanks for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.